Take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, Psalm 16. Allow me to read this wonderful psalm of Mictam of David. And then in verse 1 we read, Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have said Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul, the Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. It is perhaps in the times of adversity where your faith is tested the most. Is it genuine? Is it real? Where is your confidence placed in? Whom do you trust? All of these questions are answered in adversity. The Puritans knew a thing or two about trials in life, and we can learn about, we can learn a great deal from them. Consider the Scottish brothers Ebenezer and Ralph Erskine. Ebenezer from 1680 to 1754, the older brother, and Ralph from 1685 to 1752. Not only did these brothers have to deal with religious controversies that dampened their joy in ministry for 25 years, they endured much grief in their own family as well. The older brother, Ebenezer, buried his first wife when she was only 39 years old, his second wife three years before his own death. In addition, he lost six of 15 children. The younger brother, Ralph, buried his first wife when she was only 32 years old and lost nine of 13 children. Ebenezer wrote the following in his diary when his first wife was on her deathbed and when he had buried his own children, several of his children. Listen to what he writes. I have had the rod of God laying upon my family by the great distress of a dear wife on whom the Lord hath laid his hand, and on whom his hand doth still lie heavy. But oh, that I could proclaim the praises of his free grace, which has paid me a new and undeserved visit this day. He has been with me both in secret and in public. I found the sweet smells of the rose of Sharon, and my soul was refreshed with a new sight of him 
and the excellency of his person as Emmanuel, and in the sufficiency of his everlasting righteousness. Oh, my sinking hopes are revived by the sight of him. My bonds are loosed, and my burdens of affliction have made light when he appears. Here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. If he call me to go down to the swellings of Jordan, why not, if it be his holy will? Only be with me, Lord, and let thy rod and staff comfort me, and then I shall not fear to go through the valley of trouble, yea, through the valley of the shadow of death. End quote. You see, adversities and afflictions motivate us to draw near to God, to walk by faith. This was not only true of these two brothers, but it is true of David who pens this psalm. Psalm 16 is a psalm of confidence. All along, I'm asking myself this question as I read this psalm. Who walks about life with this kind of confidence? Who does this? Who is like this? Who walks about life with this kind of confidence? Well, David does. And he shows us how we can confidently trust in God, not only in life, but also in what? In death as well. Notice first the heading in this psalm, a miktam of David. This term appears six times in the psalms. Here in chapter 16 and also in 56 through 60. And all of these psalms, all six of these psalms are filled with lament, great sorrow, and have four historical references to David's struggles in chapter 56 with the Philistines, with Saul in 57 and 59, and with the Arameans in chapter 60. These psalms are written with great crisis in mind, at a time of great crisis. Just to give you an idea of why these psalms are filled with sorrow and why they're filled with lament, Turn over to chapter 56 of Psalms, the 56th Psalm. I want you to just see the first verse of this psalm. Mictam of David, and he writes in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. And then turn over to 57, as he deals with Saul, and he writes in verse 4, my soul is among lions. I am lying down among those who breathe forth fire, sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. I mean, you too would be lamenting if men were trampling upon you and breathing down fire. While the Hebrew term translated as miktam, you can go back to 16, may not be known with certainty, it's likely that this term means an inscription and or engraving from the root meaning to inscribe. Why do I say that? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22, we read, The stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord Yahweh. The same word could be translated to inscribe, and thus your iniquity is inscribed before me, and hence cannot be removed or washed out. No amount of soap can wash out the iniquity that was before the Lord. Only he and he alone could wash out such inscription, such engraving of Judah's sin. Well, going back to chapter 16 here, 
So important was this psalm that this psalm needed to be inscribed. An inscription that would normally be made on a stone slab, perhaps with gold letters. Though written during moments of crisis, they were to be remembered, and some of them even put to song. Perhaps at the end of our time in this psalm, you too will realize the importance of inscribing this psalm into your heart and soul. So here David writes of this absolute trust in Yahweh alone, who provides and protects. And this causes his heart to rejoice and his eyes to gaze, not at his circumstances, but to gaze upward to glory to God himself. So this psalm is all about Yahweh's provision and protection and the confidence he provides in life and in death. Again, I am asking myself, Who walks about life with this kind of confidence? And the answer is David does. And he begins with a prayer for protection in verse 1. Then a confession of faith in verses 2 through 4. And lastly, a thanksgiving of the soul in verses 5 through 11. A prayer, a confession, and a thanksgiving. Let's begin with a prayer. It's a prayer for protection. Look at verse 1. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. The NAS reads, and the ESV, if you have that, reads, preserve me. The verb in Hebrew means to take care of, preserve, protect. His plea is that God would protect him, watch over him, and thus keep him. How appropriate it is that we go to God. For we are reminded in another psalm, Psalm 121, Yahweh is your keeper, verse 4. He will keep you from all evil, verse 7. He will keep your soul. And there in Psalm 121, the psalmist looks beyond the here and now to eternity, for he writes from now until forever, verse 8. Now, names have significance. Here, God in Hebrew, is El, the most common name for God. But the unique quality of this name is that it delineates God as strong, as mighty, as a mighty one, a hero. Again, how appropriate it is that it is in God, the mighty one, that David takes refuge. At times, David is praying that he be kept from the hands of the wicked, Psalm 140, verse 4 from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me, and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Psalm 141, verse 9. Here we're not given from what? The details of the circumstances. We're not given that, but it becomes very clear that this is a life-threatening crisis that David is facing. A life-threatening trial. Why do I say that? Peek down in verse 10. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. Sheol is a reference to the grave. It appears 65 times in the Old Testament, and depending on the context, it could be translated as grave, pit, or even hell. In general, it refers to the abode of the dead. He's thinking of death. Elsewhere, David writes, My soul has been saturated with calamities, and my life has reached Sheol. In Psalm 88, verse 3, Here, the circumstance that David is facing is causing him to think even 
of death. Perhaps David is facing such threats to his life in the wilderness. Or perhaps he is facing severe opposition to his reign as king. We simply do not know. But let me tell you, it's real. It is real. And it is a reminder to us all. Only God knows what storms of adversity that shall come our way. Only God knows. Dear Christian, suffering and trials will surely come. Our resolve this day must be to rely upon God with a sure and the steadfast faith to take refuge in God, the mighty one. Let this be the continual outlook in your life during the whole course of your entire life, however many days God gives you on this earth. As Calvin wrote, Our safety both in life and in death depends entirely upon our being under the protection of God, end quote. It is no wonder that David prays in the very next psalm, Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The apple of the eye was an expression that refers to the people of the human eye. In the same way a person with zealous care protects this vital organ of vision, so God keep me, protect me. Elsewhere we read that the Lord speaking through his prophet Ezekiel concerning Israel, in Ezekiel 2a, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, Moses testified of God's protection over Israel, saying he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the apple of his eye. Our gaze, my beloved, must not be to our circumstances. Anyone does that, but you're different. You're called to be different. Our gaze must be upward to God to his excellencies, to his mercies, to his loving kindness, to his grace. So all that is revealed in holy pages of scripture of who he is, of who he's declared himself to be. And so resolve this day, dear Christian, to trust God's sovereign and tender care over your life. Let our posture be of complete reliance on the Almighty, for He is our refuge. He is our shield. You see, my beloved, the reason we can pray, keep me, preserve me, protect me, is because of who He is. Here David reminds us that God is a shield. He is our refuge. Next, David turns from a prayer for protection, to a confession of faith. A confession of faith in verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 2 once again. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, I have no good without you. Stop right there. This confession is threefold. Here it begins with a faith in Yahweh. This is what the soul confesses. Are you ready for it? You... You are my Lord. Every true believer confesses their faith in God, you see. 
Difficult days have a way of drawing out what we believe, of whom we believe on. Notice whom the soul has said this to. Yahweh. Yahweh. The divine title that points to the covenant relationship that God has with his people, Yahweh. In verse 1, David directs his prayer to the Almighty One. Here in verse 2, David confesses his faith to Yahweh. Yahweh is his name, his memorial name from generation to generation that God revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Yahweh speaks of God's eternal and unchanging nature. And David confesses to the eternal and ever-present Yahweh of his faith. I have no other. You alone I worship. You alone I love. You are my Lord. Notice the name Lord. In Hebrew, it's Adonai. It speaks of God's supreme sovereignty and his ultimate authority over all things. All things include me, my life, my soul, my all. He is my supreme Lord and has ultimate authority over my life. We heard it this morning. He is our master. We are his what? Slaves. Is that what you confess, my dear? Is that what you confess? The reality is that none of us, listen, of our own accord, can pray for God's protection. None of us of our own accord can merit the favor of God by any of the deeds we have done. In fact, our deeds are sufficient reason to cast us all from his presence under the hell that we all deserve. Truth be told. Yet David encourages his soul as well as ours that it is on the basis of our faith, my beloved, by which we do ask for protection because we believe on God. By which we can say that we are part of the covenant people of God, that he is our father and we are his children. Listen, my dearly beloved, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his what? His mercy. Titus 3, 5, what we sang about this morning. Notice it is according to his character, not according to my deeds. It's on the basis of who God is, not on what I have done. I am convinced of it. Paul reiterates this in the New Testament when he writes in Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And in the very next chapter, chapter 4, when he demonstrates that Abraham was justified by faith alone, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, that's us, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. So we're not justified by our deeds. We have been justified by faith. Romans 5.1 And so David encourages his soul, you are my Lord. 
as Adonai, God is in control, not I. As Adonai, all that I am, all that I have belongs to you. We recognize that as his children, do we not? We recognize that as his children, do we not? We do. That's right. Sometimes I ask for that. <laughs> Just to make sure that you're still awake. Doug, are you still awake? I'm still awake. He's still awake. <laughs> he was a little bit of a concern for me this morning, so I want to make sure that for everybody's sake that Doug is awake. Here is the heart of a genuine believer, one who confesses his trust, his belief upon Yahweh. Here is the heart of a genuine child of God. And what does a child express all the time to his parents? His and her total reliance upon his parents. Believe me, I know. Total reliance upon mommy and daddy. Here, a genuine child of God is expressing his total reliance upon Yahweh. But there's more that David adds. Look at verse 2. You are my Lord. I have no good without you. If you have the NAS, I have no good besides you or the ESV apart from you. Literally, it reads, my good, there is none above you. That is to say, you are my Lord. You are my good. There is none above you. There is no one more than you, my Lord. There is no one greater than you, my Lord. You are my good. I have no good without you. You see, my beloved, the focus here is upon God's goodness and our utter emptiness of any good. We are empty and destitute of all good. We have nothing we can offer to God that is good. There is nothing in us that would make God shower his goodness upon our lives. We do not deserve his goodness. If you recall, it was the rich young ruler who asked our Lord the following question in Matthew 19, verse 16. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? It's a great question. Jesus' response is what we all need to hear, though. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 17. See, there is no hope of eternal life on the basis of works because you can't do it. You cannot fulfill all righteousness. You cannot fulfill the commandments to perfection. It only takes one sin to be a sinner, to break them all. What was lacking in this rich young ruler was a deep sense of what? Of his sinfulness. And Jesus had to point that out. David confesses here, you are my good, I have no good without you. Listen, God does not depend on others for his goodness. He does not depend on anyone else for his goodness. We, on the other hand, depend solely on Yahweh for good. Did you hear that? We, on the other hand, depend solely on Yahweh for good. 
Just consider the hard providences that God allows to come into your life. Yes, I'm talking about all those things that God allows, permits, ordains, brings about, however you're comfortable in hearing those verbs. Consider those hard providences that we face in life. My beloved, we live in a cruel world, and we live among cruel people. And do you know that cruelty can even be experienced within the family? It was for Joseph. But at the very end of the whole ordeal, Joseph confesses this to his brothers. In Genesis 50, verse 20, you know this. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, who is all good, who is always good, God meant it for good. God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. This is what God does. God does not depend on others for his goodness. We, on the other hand, depend on God for good. God alone provides for our well-being, for our all, even in those hard providences. Now, David's confession is not all about proclaiming a faith in Yahweh. You know what it also includes? You're going to love this. It's a love for the saints. It's a love for the saints. Look at verse 3. This is going to resonate in your heart as well. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Earlier I made this statement. Every true believer confesses their faith in God. Next, David will remind us that every true believer loves the people of God. Every time we come in, and we stroll on in to find a parking space, whether it's the north lot or across the wash or in Timbuk 4, that's twice as long as Timbuk 2. <laughs> Wherever it is, I remind the children, why do we come to church? We love God and we love his people. That's why we come to church. Every true believer loves the people of God. Saints here are Kedoshim, holy ones. They are the true believers in the land who are in the earth. These are the righteous Israelites. It's the first time they are addressed. In Psalm 89, they are addressed as holy ones. Verse 5 and verse 7 in Psalm 89. You see, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy what? And a holy nation. Exodus 19, verse 6. They were to be set apart from everyone else. And that same call for to be set apart was not only seen among the Israelites in the Old Testament, but it's also seen among saints in the New Testament. For Peter writes this of God's chosen family in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, but you are a chosen family, you see, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have 
received mercy. Going back to our psalm, David not only refers to them as saints, but notice what he says of them in verse 3. They are the majestic ones, the majestic ones. True believers are not only designated as holy ones, but as majestic ones. Elsewhere, they are designated as noble ones. Noble, that's not you, but just noble ones. (laughs) Described as splendid, as majestic, or high-ranking as kings. Don't you get any ideas, noble? Psalm 136, verse 18. These are his people, is what David is saying. These are my people, you see. These are the people David identifies himself with, and they are the people whom he loves. Looks down in verse 3. They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. It is a different way to express it, for at times we speak of a place we delight in. A land of delight, Malachi 3.12. Concerning the righteous man, well, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, Psalm 1, 2. But of the true believer, his delight is with the brethren in the community of God's people. Fellow believers, to him there is no better place to be than with the community of God's people. You know this. You know this. On a Sunday morning... Who do you want to be with? With the saints. On a Sunday night, who do you want to be with? With the saints. On a Wednesday night, who do you want to be with? With the saints. And on a Friday night, who do you want to be with? With the saints. Saturday morning. (laughs) Who do you want to be with? Come on now. With the saints. These are my people, you see. Person to my left and to my right, these are my people. I value them as noble and majestic ones. I look up to them. That's why I'm here in joint heirs. That's why I've stayed here in joint heirs all these years. Truth be told, I came here for Lance. I went out to lunch with him, and I asked him just one question. Lance, are you satisfied with the Lord has you? And Lance says, who told you? I said, nobody. I'm actually leaving, David. What? You're leaving? I just got here. I had to make the call back then. Do I leave or do I stay? And I stayed, and I'm glad I stayed. You see, I esteem these people in joint heirs highly. For I see their love for God, and I see their commitment to the church like no other. And when I grow up, I want to be like Bob Houghton. (laughs) I want to have a love for God like he has. I want to have a love for the saints like Bob has love for the saints. Gosh, David put it together. i got to get it through. (laughs) David includes in his confession not only a faith in Yahweh, a love for the saints, but also in his confession is a disdain for false worship. That comes to us in verse 4. 
the pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied, he writes. In contrast to the saints in whom he delights in, in verse 3, the psalmist here declares unashamedly that he will have nothing to do with false worship. Those who have bartered for another God. That verb is used of the dowry you pay for a wife to the parents. In Exodus 22, verse 16, here they are those who have paid. They have bartered for another God. There is some financial investment they have made to show their devotion to this false deity. And I ask myself, what good does it do? What will it gain you in going after false gods? Jeremiah the prophet addresses the apostasy of Israel. They had forsaken the Lord, and Jeremiah rightly calls it wickedness. He calls it evil. They had exchanged God with some worthless, powerless, useless deity. And so God speaks through his prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 2.11, has a nation changed gods, though they were not gods? And my people have changed their glory, that is, the Lord himself, for that which does not profit. Later on in Jeremiah 23, Yahweh confronts the false prophets in verse 32 of that chapter. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied lying dreams, declares Yahweh, and who recounted them and led my people astray by their lying and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them, and I did not command them, and they do not furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares Yahweh. No profit whatsoever, not even the slightest benefit in going after false gods. David unashamedly declares their pains will be multiplied. And this is the just consequence for their choice. Not only is it a bad investment, but it will cause them suffering, anxiety, sorrow, grief, and anguish all the days of their lives for following after these gods. My beloved, this is what the unbelieving world faces for their idolatry. They will face the suffering, the anxiety, the sorrow, the grief, the anguish. That's what they face. And they will pay the millions to get some relief. And they'll pay for whatever lies people will tell them that will give them some kind of relief. But it will not come. Paul in the New Testament unashamedly calls them false teachers. Our pastor read it this morning. They are the enemies of the cross, Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I told you and now tell you even crying as enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. And so Paul passionately, the first time you see it, he's crying out to them, warning them, the believers at Philippi. And David writes that he wants nothing to do with them. Going back to our psalm, look down at verse 4. David continues, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. 
Here David explains that he does not do what they do in their false religion. He does not pour out their drink offerings of blood as they do. You see, these bloody offerings were in nature hideous. They were detestable. This could very well be speaking of the blood of human sacrifices that went along with the false worship of Molech and Chemosh, which they even drank that blood. And David says he wants nothing to do with them, nor can he even name them. Perhaps David had Exodus 23, verse 13 in mind. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, beware and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. So it begins with a prayer, then a confession, and David moves on from his confession of faith to a thanksgiving of the soul. In verses 5 through 11, David continues his declaration of who God is and that he alone is the source of all good. And that is why he separates himself from idolaters and resolves to be committed to Yahweh alone. And he provides reasons for our thanksgiving. And it's all centered around who God is, of who God is. Our thanksgiving comes from who God is. Who is God? Well, God is the one who provides good gifts to his people. Look at verse 5. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. This brings us back to when the land of Canaan was divided among the tribes in Joshua 13 through chapter 21. There God provides his people with detailed plans for settling in the land. And this was a task delegated to Joshua. God owns the land, but out of his goodness and kindness, he divides it among the tribes. But only the Levites, only the Levites were not assigned to a specific land because as Yahweh said it to Aaron in Numbers 18, verse 20, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. Why? I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. You see, the gifts Yahweh received would be their support. Deuteronomy 18, verse 1, they shall eat of the offering to Yahweh by fire and of his inheritance. And so the Levites were provided for by Yahweh himself through the offerings brought by the people of God. But then we read in Jeremiah 10, verse 16, The portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he, and Israel is a tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Here, Yahweh is said to be the portion of the whole nation, of the whole nation. Yahweh was to be the portion of the nation at large, to be the portion of the tribe of Levi in particular, and in a spiritual way of every believing Israelite. Yahweh was David's portion. He is the source of all that we are given in life. Look down at verse 5. 
Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You see that? My cup. Cup was a symbol of one's destiny, hence a cup of fate. It represents your portion in life, what you and I are given to drink, as it were. All of us have been given a cup to drink. David says elsewhere in Psalm 23, verse 5, my cup, what? Overflows. It is full of blessings, you see, what you and I are made to drink from this cup of fate as his children. As a believer, you need to realize that what has been given to you is a cup of blessing. A cup of blessing. It is a cup of goodness, of God's goodness, because it is given by Yahweh alone, who alone is good. You might ask, what if my life has been filled with many lows and valleys and great sorrows and distresses and calamities and adversities and trials? Well, you need to read Psalm 23 again, my beloved. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. See, my beloved Yahweh is your provider in this life. He is your destiny. All that you possess is from him. All is ordained by him. And my beloved, he holds it all in his hands. He holds your lot and mine. He supports it. All that David can do at this point is marvel at God's goodness. Look at verse 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. Again, David is still using the idea of the allotted inheritance given to the tribes of Israel. Lines refers to the cords used for measuring, thus measuring lines used to designate a piece of land. And what has fallen to David, what has been given to David is in pleasant places. In pleasant places. Now, some of us like to speak of the beautiful place that we live in. I know you guys play a heavy tax for living in SoCal. But you can't claim this verse to speak of that. It goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond a place. You see, it all points to Yahweh. Pleasant places, lovely places, delightful places. And what is beautiful is not a land, but the inheritance God gives of himself in whatever place and whatever season of life that you are in. So whether you are just starting out in life or you are at the sunset of life, God has been your inheritance, my beloved. All the good gifts that you have received in life, if you count your blessings, all that you will receive in this life, all of it, you see, come from Yahweh. All of it. All of it. 
Next, God is the one who provides guidance and counsel for his people. Look down in verse 7. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Yahweh is the one who has counseled me. Yahweh receives no counsel from anyone, but we receive counsel from him, you see. Paul quotes from Isaiah in Romans 11, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? The answer is no one. But for us, we need counsel. At times it comes in the form of chastisement, of rebuke, of instruction. Just listen to Pastor John Street's message last week on Psalm 6. This is what David speaks of in the latter part of verse 7. Indeed, Notice what it says. My mind instructs me in the night. In the nights. That is, throughout the nights. Plural. In the hours of darkness. You need to realize that nights, yes, nights, are favorable times where you can pray. Have you figured that out? Yes, of course you have. They are favorable times when you can pray, when you can meditate on God's word. It's most quiet at night. There in the night, your mind, your heart, King James Version. I'm looking at you, brother. That's right, King James Version. My reins, literally my kidneys, your mind admonishes you. Your mind instructs you through his spirit by his word. Nights are used by the psalmist as a great time to pray and meditate on God's word. Sometimes attending the school of Christ is offered only as a night class. Notice what the psalmist has to say about the nights. In Psalm 42, verse 8, By day Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Songs come forth by night as you contemplate God as the God of your life, my beloved. Psalm 76, verse 6. I remember my music in the night. I am musing with my heart and my spirit is searching. My music refers to happier pasts. Such recollections help hush the storms of life in the present. You see, the the reason you are to look to the past is not to be weighed down by the difficulties of what has happened in the past, but you look to the past to look to God. You look to the past to be reminded of God's faithfulness, of his works, of his promises, of his word. There in the night you deal with the doubts that wage war against what you know to be true. There you push them to silence. There you ease your soul when you remind yourself of the truths of what you know about God. Sometimes the nights are when you cry the most. Psalm 88, verse 1, O Yahweh, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and throughout the night before you. And so in solitude, when no one is around, no one's awake, There you can cry out to God. Your mind reminds you of his works. 
your mind reminds you of his word, and perhaps at night your song will be with you, and you too will bless the Lord as David does in verse 7. I will bless Yahweh, who has counseled me, indeed my mind instructs me in the night. We bless Yahweh who counsels and guides. But also, he is the God who provides protection for his people. Protection for his people. I have set Yahweh continually before me, David writes, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is what the stability of what having a relationship with God does. This is what Yahweh brings to his people, stability. Regardless of what you face in life, regardless of the circumstances in which David found himself, he has set Yahweh continually before him. That is to acknowledge God, contemplate on Yah, always ever mindful of his presence in your life, giving him priority in all your thoughts and all that you do. It is putting Proverbs 3, 6 into practice. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Literally to acknowledge is to know God, knowing Yahweh well and deeply, knowing deeply what the Lord has said in his word, knowing what he desires and to follow him in obedience. Just watch him direct your paths and make them straight. To not acknowledge Yahweh is to invite trouble in your life and to leave you unstable. To have Yahweh at my right hand is to have him in the place of strength and honor. If Yahweh is on my right side, then he is my strength, my shield. I have no fear of man or of anything. That is not to say that we will not face trouble in our lives that no amount of trouble will ever break God's protective care over your life. Notice David's joyful response. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely. Inwardly he is glad. His glory is a figurative of his innermost being, describing what gives him importance, what gives him value. And it too rejoices. Not only that, but he has the confidence that his flesh will dwell securely. How securely? How could he be so confident? Look at verse 10. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Even in death, his confidence is in Yahweh. God is not going to abandon me. He has not abandoned me in life, and he will not abandon you in death. Both Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13 quote this psalm and attribute this to the resurrection of our Lord. His body lay in a grave for a little while, then on the third day he arose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we too can have the confidence that Yahweh will not abandon us in death. Paul put it in a form of a question, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Sword was a symbol of death. 
Do you think that even death will separate you from his love towards you? No. The grave is not the end, my beloved. Our relationship with God does not die at death. It is only in the beginning. Look at how he ends in verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is a fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. You see, my beloved, one day we will be at Yahweh's right hand where we will enjoy pleasures forever. In his presence is fullness and abundance of joys. It's plural. So bursting forth in this verse is the hope of everlasting life. My beloved, my prayer is that today your confidence in the Lord would be renewed. My beloved, his care over your life extends beyond the grave. You need to know that. You need to believe on that. And no matter what you face in this life, you can have a joyful confidence that his love for you does not die, nor will you ever be separated from his love. And so you can say with Paul, as Paul did in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Yahweh not only redeems his people, but he lovingly guides and counsels his people through life. We need that counsel. Yahweh also provides for his people and protects them along the way. And so, dear Christian, look not at the circumstances. Look upward. Look to Yahweh, who alone provides and protects his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say? You are good. And we do not deserve your goodness upon our lives. Thank you. Thank you. It is our heart's desire to please you in all that we do, in all that we say. We long to be in your presence. For you are the prize. You are the goal. You are everything. And our heart's desire is to be with you. But as long as we have breath, help us to bless your name. Help us to speak forth the excellencies your qualities, your perfections to this world. Help us to proclaim your gospel that others might know you, that others might have eternal life. Be merciful to us. Continue to withhold judgment. Allow us to live for you and to beg this world to be reconciled to you. We ask this because of Christ in his name. Amen.